people kind of think that, you know, if you call out white supremacy or systemic racism, that, you know, people must be burning crosses and saying the N word and going to meetings, you know, with the hood. And it's like, no, it, it comes in many different forms and it often comes from very well-mannered people, you know, well-meaning people that just subconsciously have like, like we keep talking about this implicit bias and kind of bring that to the forefront of what they were taught and what they pass on. Welcome to Among Neighbors, a joint project between the Point Park Center for Media Innovation and YWCA Greater Pittsburgh. Welcome to Among Neighbors, a podcast about race, power, and privilege. I'm Andy Conti, director of the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University in downtown Pittsburgh. Hey, Andy, long time no see. This is Barbara Johnson. I am the director of race and gender equity at YWCA Greater Pittsburgh. And normally, Andy and I are sitting in the studio together, but these are COVID times, so. They are. It's strange times. It's been a while since we've been together. And not only COVID, but uh, you know, we've seen the whole discussion around race really change over the last few months uh, with, obviously, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis that changed the country in a, a way that was different than other examples of police brutality that we've seen before that and since then. Uh, it just seemed to affect people differently. And then... It brought attention to the deaths of so many other people. Ahmaud Arbery, Elijah McClain, Breonna Taylor, so many other people that have suffered at the hands of police brutality, black people. And uh, and then, of course, that led to protests around the world, not just in the United States and, and not just here in Pittsburgh, even though we did see it here in Pittsburgh. That really changed the discussion. And then it led to a whole different understanding of race. I mean, we now see... Confederate flags are banned at NASCAR events, which just seems inconceivable. Mm-hmm. Confederate flags and NASCAR uh, seem to go hand in hand, you know, at, at, at some points in the past. Uh, and then, you know, we see the the Washington football team. I almost said their name, you know, their old name, but uh, changing their name. And Civil War statues coming down around the country. We see the, the Black Lives Matter words written on the street near the White House, you know, in big letters. I'm just wondering... Barbara, from your perspective, how are you taking all this in? How is it affecting you? Um, You know, it's interesting because the work that I do at YWCA includes um, some uh, racial justice uh, educational workshops. And so prior to coming to the YWCA, I had been in the diversity and inclusion field, but now I've been able to really zero in on race. And so um, it it always... um, never surprised me that that our country is where we are today because there are so many remnants of um, slavery. And um, the more that I do the work that I do in terms of education, I'm learning more myself because in my opinion, our educational systems never really taught any of us um, about the, re- the reality of race in America. And so uh, oftentimes I get into this um, very, uh, I'll call it a dark place where, you know, it's hard to think about the fact that this country really did intentionally oppress black and brown people from slavery till today. Like there's no difference. It's just, it just looks different. Um, So yeah, some people are successful. Yeah, some people have jobs. Yeah, some people are ahead, but we could be so much better because we have the potential in this country to make sure that everybody has a good job, you know, can get generational wealth. But unfortunately, our historic narrative has um, created a path that I don't know how we're going to get out of it. Yeah, and I think for me, from a, a white perspective, 
that's what's been shocking and different about you know the the aftermath of the the murder of George Floyd was that it seems like white people are maybe taking it more seriously. They're paying attention to it differently. Uh, I live in Mount Lebanon, which is almost all white, and you know. We went to a rally in, in Upper St. Clair. There were like 500 people there, 90% white crowd, people rallying for Black Lives Matter. And and then this a similar thing happened in Mount Lebanon a few weeks later. And I, I think I from the black people that are in my circle that I've talked to and, and people that I know, that there's skepticism and a cynicism about whether that is actually going to lead to real change or not. Uh, but from a white perspective, it, it at least seems different this time that white people are waking up to the injustices you talked about, not just the the acute injustices that we see, but mm-hmm. the chronic ones that exist, the things that you were just talking about. What is your sense on that? Do you feel like it is a different vibe this time than before? Um, yeah. And I would say just exactly what you said, the fact that large numbers of white people feel compelled to, you know, go out into the public spaces and, you know, show that they're allies um, in the work. I, I think that that's definitely um, important in the in in where we go where we go from here. And I also think um, there has to be there has to be people have to see how individually they can take action in addition to the group type of um, public scene um, because everybody does have the potential to do something or say something in their own sphere of influence in a way that can um, really make change. And so, you know, if those 500 people in Mount Lebanon use their sphere of influence in a positive way to make an impact that they never thought that they really had, that can start to really um, bubble up the change that, that we need for sure. And, you know, as a racial justice trainer, allies are so important. Um, you know, we can't, we can't do the work alone. We shouldn't do the work alone as brown and black people. Um, allies are important and it's important to to really understand the depth of the story and the depth of the person's narrative and to um, be an ally in the space that those people want you to be an ally and to step out of the way when you need to step out of the way. So I would say, yes, I'm super excited to hear that that happened in Mount Lebanon, you know, and, and if you know Pittsburgh, you know how segregated our neighborhoods are and polarized our neighborhoods are both um, racially and economically. And so, um, you know, to be standing here in Penn Hills and knowing that in Mount Lebanon there was energy around that makes me feel good. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, I, I think it's interesting what you brought up about, you know, asking brown people and black people to solve the problem of racism, because it's, you know, that's really the way we've treated it in the United States. Like, this is a problem that black people need to solve on their own. And really, racism, it seems like, is a white problem, right? I mean, it's it's the way white people treat black people and brown people that is the problem. It's not brown people or black people saying, you know, creating racism. And so, Finally, for the white community to finally wake up to it and say, like, oh, we need to take on this issue. We need to understand it. We need to feel comfortable even talking about it, which is where yeah. you and you and I have started out with this whole show is like we need to have more conversations about it. Uh, seems like progress. And hopefully we can keep it going. I Yeah. I, yeah. What do you, I mean? What are your thoughts on that, Barbara? No, absolutely. That 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 is one of the things that's very, very important is the communication piece. People have to be able to talk about the issues and not only um 
except that there might be things that they feel uncomfortable about. And again, it's so important to realize that we didn't learn a lot of what the, the missing gaps of what's happening today in our society, like what created all of that, we didn't learn in school, grade school, high school, colleges. There were so many gaps in our educational system intentionally kept from us. Um, and so, you know, when I sit and talk with you and I talk about something that I read in like, you know, the color of law, um, you know, there's some shocking things. You're like, why didn't I learn that in geography class or, you know, history class or math class? Um, and so we all have to be intentional about both the learning and the being an ally. And so, yeah, talking is one way to get there. And and we have to be willing to, you know, be feel feel um, not hurt. Yeah, maybe hurt. We have to feel uncomfortable. Um, we have to feel we have to experience feel all of the range of feelings that come from these conversations, but we can never say, because I feel this way, I'm giving up, right? We have to stick in there and stay on the path. Yeah. It's not acceptable to just say, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to walk away from it. So, right. and with that, that I, you know, I, I, I don't know if I've said this to you, but thank you for, you know, hosting this podcast with me. Cause I, I appreciate that you, you trust me enough that you welcomed me into this conversation. So thanks for that, Barbara. Absolutely. So with all that in mind, let's bring in today's guest as well. Uh, one thing that's happened with the, the Black Lives Matter rallies that we've seen across the country is that uh, reporters have gotten caught in the crossfire sometimes, literally in the, in the crossfire uh, yeah. sometimes, but then also figuratively. Uh, of course, there was the that famous scene in Minneapolis after the, the George Floyd death when the CNN reporter was arrested on air, and, and that's something we all watched. But here in Pittsburgh, a different situation really played out with... Um, a Post-Gazette reporter who put out a tweet that I, I thought the tweet was funny. Um, Barbara, what did you think? Was it, was it a funny tweet or how would yeah, you? Yeah, like it? I was, you know, like I, I, I was looking at it and, you know, I saw the picture of all this garbage and a picture of this. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, what, this is a rally in Pittsburgh. And then, you know, when I read it and it said Kenny Chesney, I started laughing because if you're in Pittsburgh, you live in Pittsburgh, you know exactly what that looks like. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. So I thought it was funny, too. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it totally resonated with it resonated with me the same way. And I think it resonated with lots of people because it was one honest and, uh, you know, it just was a. a a funny and witty way of looking at the situation. And of course, tens of thousands of people have retweeted it. And then the response from uh, the newspaper was that the, the post Gazette said that that reporter uh, Alexis Johnson was no longer allowed to cover any of the black lives matter rallies. And then it got a little absurd because her colleagues at the newspaper, uh, almost every member of the, the newspaper guild who has a Twitter account retweeted it. And uh, one of them, and the most famous was probably Michael Santiago, a photographer who uh, he then was prevented from covering Black Lives Matter, and then everyone who had retweeted it was also prevented from it. And so you had the situation where the Post Gazette, one of the the region's leading news sources, has a room full of reporters and photographers, and then the editors <laughs> and managers decided they couldn't send any of them out because they'd all sent out the same tweet. Mm. So we're joined today by Alexis Johnson. Alexis, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I mean, geez, when you put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just interesting because I've been living it, you know, so every time I see it or read about it, it just kind of gets more and more bizarre to me. It's like I have a little bit of a, not imposter syndrome, but, you know, kind of just, it's still unreal kind of that, you know, you're talking about me, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like I see, I see my name and I hear my name, but it's, it's also, it's, 
it's honestly just been a lot to process and register that all you know all those things have transpired so Thank you for that. Was a good recap. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so we're we're not gonna so, <laughs> very accurate. <laughs> we're not gonna get into the specifics of the tweet or what sure. happened with the post gazette uh, because you know that's really been talked about a lot and uh, and of course you have a pending lawsuit against the newspaper as well. Uh, but we're really interested in, in in your perspective and you know how it's changed you and just your perspective as a person. So uh, how how has it changed you that experience of going through that as a, a journalist and as a, a person as a black person. What are some of your takeaways from just having gone through that whole experience of having, you know, national attention and yeah. everything around one tweet? It's been a lot, you know. Um, I just kind of never expected to kind of be in that position. Um, I, up until that point, I really hadn't had any personal gripes with management or felt personally uh, targeted or attacked or discriminated against in any way. Not to say that there was never any you know, microaggressions that, you know, we feel as black people in America or in any corporate setting, you know, every single day that we kind of just let roll off our shoulders because, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I'm the black percentage of reporters of, in the Post-Gazette, I think is less than 10%. Mm. Um, and there's no black people in uh, news management. There, we have one in sports and we have a, a black nighttime copy editor who uh, oversees, you know, the nighttime management of what goes on the paper. Um, but as far as news, um, business, uh, arts and entertainment, uh, city cops, anything like that, there's kind of no black people making these decisions. So, you know, that that, that just kind of creates this general, you know what I mean, kind of feeling of otherness and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I felt that my entire life, like like Barbara said, I've grown up in Pittsburgh where it's been very segregated. I'm from Penn Hills. Back in the day when I was going to Penn Hills, you know, I was the only black girl in several of my classes. Now it looks a lot different. <laughs> but, um yeah, so to kind of be thrust into this situation, it's kind of like, oh, you know, you never thought that this would happen to me kind of situation, and then it does. And um, But, you know, honestly, uh, Andrew, when it, when it first happened, uh, when I got the call that I was no longer being uh, allowed to cover these protests, you know, the first thing I did was call my mom because I was so pissed off. You know, I was, like, pacing back and forth. I was, like, on my porch screaming. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that they're taking me off this for this tweet. You know, so I've kind of just, after it kind of blew up, um, and you got to get you go through these feelings of like you know well you know is because you know we didn't ask for it to blow up like this it wasn't like we were like leaking this to national you know media outlets we thought our grievance and the grievance was leaked to a local outlet i think pittsburgh city paper was the first to break it and then it was kind of game on from there and i was getting all kinds of questions from reporters from washington post and new york post ended up on joanne reed show so you know that <laughs> it was like whoa you know and, and you kind of stop and you're like is this that big a deal you know like you're like whoa like i didn't you know we didn't want it to you know not want necessarily is the right verb for it but you know it kind of just didn't expect it to, to grow the legs that it did but that i kept thinking back to um you know those initial feelings that i had that you know something was wrong here i was being you know discriminated against or treated unfairly in some way those initial feelings of anger that I had when I got the call and then to see how much everybody kind of supported me and backed me and was interested in the story, um, kind of just kind of really validated what I was feeling. So that was really great because, you know, like I said, we feel these microaggressions and we might speak out. We might not because we don't know how many people will back us or, you know, think that we're crazy or, you know, whatever the case may be. So it's kind of just been really affirming, um, that, like you guys were having the conversation about allies that so many allies, you know, being a 90% white newsroom still came to back me um, in that way and made it 
you know, what it is today. And I'm here speaking with you guys. So it's been just kind of a whirlwind of emotions, honestly. I'm curious. I mean, you're, you've talked about the allies, but I, I think about, you know, my own experiences in newsrooms and, uh, you know, as a, a white journalist in the newsroom, it's easy to not think about race, right? You're just like, you're just a, mm-hmm. a, a journalist in the newsroom, but do you feel like it, how, how much does it color your experience of being in the newsroom? Um, you know, being black, do you feel like that all the time? Is it something that you think about, Hey, I'm not being heard by my, um, bosses because I'm black mm-hmm. or I don't feel like there's a path toward success in, in, that because of my color yeah i mean i mean how can you kind of feel hopeful about a path toward success when none of your managers are black you know what i mean it's like you have to kind of you can't you can't be what you don't see and you have to kind of you know what i mean know what's possible and see these people be like okay this is they've made it so kind of i can too and like you said being a white reporter you kind of almost never feel that otherness or anything like that because that's just the way the land, you know what I mean? And that kind of takes me back to, um, I guess one good instance would be, uh, when I did the black restaurants list in February and, um, I've spoken about this before, but you know, when I pitched it, it was kind of the end of black history month. Um, and you don't want to be the, you know, there's always yeah. this thing. It's like, do the black reporters have to pitch the black stories, you know, for black yeah. history month. And you know, this whole month, am I going to be the one to have to cover? So I'm kind of waiting around to see what the general plan was for black history month you know what our editors our white editors were going to come up with if anything at all for black history month are we going to do anything special are we going to do anything to up our coverage and recognize you know this historical month and um it was kind of getting towards the end and i was like you know i'm just gonna pitch this black restaurants list because you know like i said growing up in pittsburgh i eat at these places all the time and you know, we have a food writer, Dan Giggler. He's actually visited some of them, you know, but, you know, when it comes to lists and best pizza, and, you know, Pittsburgh was ranked best best place for food in the world or something. It's from some article, you know, I put it in my thing. So I was like, yeah, but, you know, are these are these black restaurants included in these conversations when we're talking about Pittsburgh's food landscape that we're so famous for? So I pitched it to one person and, once it, you know, I started working on it because they approved and kind of once it got to the higher ups, it was kind of this like, whoa, whoa, we need to talk about this. Like, is this is this pandering? Like, you know, we sh- should we be doing this during Black History Month? Does it make it seem like we're only doing this because of Black History Month? And there was like an entire meeting. I mean, there was like a half hour meeting where I kind of had to prove that it was worth doing. Um, that it was not good, you know, then it was conversations like, well, is this just going to be a list? Is this just lazy panda? And I was like, no, I've done the research on that. Like, I was always almost, almost like a third done with it by the time everybody was like, wait, like, hold on a second. And, you know, I, I was getting pictures from these, from these people. I was getting, you know, background, I give like a, three or four sentences about these, these owners, you know, put a face to a name and their stories and how they had the kind of the resilience and the wearing thought to open a restaurant, things like that. We put it up and it ends up going viral. <laughs> it does really well. It came back up again after um, all the protests and stuff started happening because everybody had this interest in supporting black businesses. So I guess that's kind of one example of where it kind of is a fight um, to get black stories done because if you figure if I would have just pitched the best food list, my favorite food list, and it just ended up being all white owned restaurants, that's just a list. You know what I mean? But when they have to pitch it and say, it's a black owned list, then it's like, oh, well, let's kind of have a conversation about why. And it's like, no, you know, we're people too. Like, we can just have a list. So that's, yeah. <laughs> that would be just one example, I guess, of, you know, like I said, kind of feeling that otherness and kind of the barrier on your shoulders as a black reporter in these newsrooms of where to take the coverage of these black communities. And should that be our sole responsibility? 
And I want to be clear about one thing before I, I hand it over to jo- to Barbara is that um, you work at the Post Gazette, obviously, but this is not a Post Gazette problem. This is a problem Absolutely that exists <laughs> a- across the news media. Uh, you know, we, a few months ago, we had on Latrell Crittenden, the the researcher and professor from uh, Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, who talked about his research showing that this kind of thing is happening at news outlets all across the Pittsburgh region, and then we know from other research it's happening all across the United States. This is just a, a major problem that that happens everywhere. So. Uh, it's great to hear you, you know, sharing your your perspective on it, how it played out for you. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things that I thought about when with your question, Andy, and I don't know if you feel this way too, Alexis, but um, I like I think about when I wake up in the morning and you know I get dressed and I'm getting ready to go out into the world. I don't say to myself, "Oh my gosh, I'm black, I'm brown." what am I going to do today? Like, I just feel human and I feel ready to take on whatever it is I'm going to take on. And it's not until you get into a situation where you um, are in a space where you're the only one and then it hits you. Oh yeah. (laughs) Here we go with the microaggressions and the racism and the, and the, and the, and the, and the on and on and on. So it, you know, it's not like, like you don't feel it, immediately when you wake up it's it it becomes part of the conditioning that you walk into every day when you're in spaces where most of the people in those spaces don't look like you don't understand you don't care about you don't care about you know why you're here or what you Mm -hmm. have to contribute and so i think that that's an important piece in the um you know the that whole um looking at race in america and understanding that it's that like we don't wake up that way like <laughs> so i don't know if you feel like you said that there's not that many people in your job that look like you either and so i would imagine yeah. you know can you talk about how that feels for you you know yeah. when you're excited about a pitched piece <laughs> there's all these white yeah. things that you like <laughs> absolutely i mean i think you know this whole situation with the tweet um would have played out totally different if there was maybe just one black manager to say, Hey, let's think about this. Let's think about how we're approaching this. Um, you know, I was never asked to take it down. I was never given a warning, you know, that kind of thing, or maybe looked at it from a different lens as far as, you know, accusing me of any type of bias and things like that. I mean, we all have implicit bias that, I mean, if you're, if you're telling me that a newsroom with 90% (laughs) white reporters has no bias in the way we cover anything from a white lens. I mean, that's just absolutely ridiculous. It may not be malicious. It may not be intentional that, you know, we're missing certain nuances and parts when we're covering stories about race for people of color, but that's just the way it is because you have your experience and how you grew up, like, like you said, and who you empathize with and who you can relate to. And I have mine. And that's why it's so important to have diversity in these newsrooms so that we can kind of bring those all together and have a discussion before anything even hits the page. So that kind of element is missing when you're in a newsroom with, you know, 90 percent white people that see these stories from a white gaze. And that's just how it is, you know, and nobody thinks that a white reporter can be biased when they're covering white stories because that's just a story and that's just the world. But as soon as we talk about, you know, putting a stamp on it and this is a black reporter and I'm doing something for black history month and I'm talking about black people, then it's kind of like, okay, well, where's your mind at? You know, are you biased? Are you leaning towards them? And it's like, Oh, I think we can use a little black bias in here. I think we can sprinkle a little of that. I mean, what's wrong with me leaning a little bit towards that? Because I mean, how, how, how often are we kind of on the other side of that spectrum when we're, when we're in our coverage? So, I mean, like you said, that's just absolutely something we feel every day, 
just as black people and especially in these kind of a uh, corporate corporate environment right and if our history wasn't so oppressive for hundreds and hundreds of years then yeah you know you could talk about black bias but for <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of years there has been a, oppression to the opposite side so you know let us get up <laughs> yeah i mean there's been so much conversation i mean like I said, I was I was upset that I couldn't cover the protests because, you know, these are my friends, my family members, my people out there protesting in the streets. I mean, who better to send but me, right? I, I would be the expert. My dad's a retired state trooper. My mom also worked in law enforcement. She was a probation officer. So I, I thought I could bring all these different things. And I pitched a bunch of stories that were eventually turned down. Um, but um, what I was saying was, kind of lost my train of thought there. But what I was saying was, uh, yeah, but who better to bring that perspective than than someone like me and then to have that kind of opportunity taken away was was a shame when I, yeah and i barbara i just want I, I wanted to thank you barbara for your explanation of how you wake up and you don't feel different it's only when you get in a situation where mm-hmm. you're, you're feeling that bias because i think for for white people we it, you can go through your life and and not ever feel that situation where you're right. you're in an uncomfortable position where you're the only person who's different in a room. Uh, you know, you have to really seek it out as a white person. And I, I think about uh, my own experience. I went to a Pittsburgh black media federation meeting uh, just before the COVID hit. And I was the only white person in the room, uh, which was fine is what I expected. Right. I put myself in that situation. But at the end, then my friend, uh, Olga George, who's a producer at KDK, mm-hmm. she's the vice president of the group. She turns to me and she's like, Andy, why are you here? And you know, what do you, what's this about? And, and how does it feel to be here to be the only white person in the room? And then, you know, she just reinforced like, that's, that's how we feel all the time when we're the only black person in a room you walk in. So, uh, you know, thanks for sharing that. And I, I think for white people, it's important to think about that. You know, the fact that you never have to deal with that kind of discomfort or, or, you know, you can go through and, and not feel uncomfortable. And, uh, deliberately try to put yourself in situations where you feel that so you can at least empathize with having that had that experience. Is that wrong? I think, yeah. Does I that think that's sense? what we're missing a lot is the empathy. Okay. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I think that's kind of at the crux of all conversations about race because like I said, the, you know, there, there may be people that are well-intentioned that are still holding up these values of white supremacy. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. people kind of think that, you know, if you call out white supremacy or systemic racism, that you know people must be burning crosses and saying the n-word and going to meetings you know with the hood and it's like no it it comes in many different forms and it often comes from very well-mannered people you know well-meaning people that just subconsciously have like like we keep talking about this implicit bias and kind of bring that to the forefront of what they were taught and what they pass on and things like that so i think that's really important because that is where the lack of empathy comes for somebody that doesn't look like you and somebody that may not experience things that you've experienced um i think that's where you know people can't couldn't relate to whatever i was going through the situation that another black person in the room may be going through because it's kind of the lack of empathy just because you you, you don't understand what, what what it is so knowledge like you said uh, having these conversations is very important to kind of push that agenda a little bit i think you know the, the 500 people in mount lebanon they they empathize with you know they may not ever have an encounter with a police officer uh let alone something as drastic as what happened to george floyd but they were able to empathize and say that you know something needs to be done about this yeah, mm-hmm. yeah um I, I was just thinking about how you talked about the word you well you didn't use the word subtle but it's the subtle behavior mm-hmm. The subtle actions and it's also the subtlety in language um i was reading something and it was talking about how 
um, there's a lot of language that's coded that we don't even pay attention to. So oftentimes when they're when people are referring to um, black and brown families, they'll say um, uh, inner city families. Right. Mm. And when gentrification happens to that same community um, and white families move in, they're no longer inner city families. Mm -hmm. Right. So like that was something that was insightful to me when I was reading and I thought, oh, my goodness, I never thought about that before. And so how much of our language is so coded that we are not even aware of it. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's why it's kind of important to like I keep saying have like these messages get sent out in print. You know, I'm sure journalists across the world use the words in inner, inner city and things like that and, and don't have any problems with it. But if there's no black editors to kind of stop and say, hey, we need to frame this a little bit differently. Yeah. Or like I said, have empathy for, you know, whoever our subject it is that we're talking about and try to get nuance about, you know, what the situation is and why these people are in these situations um, mm -hmm. because of systemic racism and the way we talk about crime and things like that. I mean, you can go on and on. And right. the thing about that is, you know, people want to hire diversity reporters and let's talk about you know race and it's like you need to have a black reporter talking about business because there's racism in business there's racism in education there's racism in arts and entertainment <laughs> there's racism if we're talking about the economy if we're talking about climate change so that's <laughs> yeah i mean that's what i'm so it's like that needs to be it, it kind of infused in the way we cover things across the board yeah yeah Alexis, um, I, I'm, you talked about the support you got from your newsroom, but I'm, I'm curious whether you felt like the city had your back or did you have people not treat you well because they saw what you were going through? How, what was that experience? Literally, like? I was expecting to get like trolled and none of that has happened. Like only after uh, our executive editor, Keith Barris, he went on Fox News and did an interview with Laura Ingram. So I got some kind of, you know, you know, that that audience, they sent me a few rude tweets. Um, but other than that, I was just completely taken aback because, one, like you mentioned before, once everybody had uh, copied and pasted my tweet and did the I stand with Alexis hashtag and ended up trending on Twitter that night. And it wasn't because of the hundred people in my newsroom that did it. People were just tweeting it like people that people from competing news outlets were tweeting it. People that just knew about what was happening that had nothing to do with media were just copying and pasting that tweet and hashtagging I stand with Alexis. And I was just completely taken aback. I've gotten letters sent to me from readers who, you know, were saying, you know, they were sorry for what happened to me and things like that. I mean, my DMs, my emails blew up. I mean, it was just I was just completely taken aback by how much support I got from this city. I mean, it was just it was insane. I never I never could have expected it. But like I keep saying that just only like reaffirmed that I was in the, you know, I was on the right side of history with this one. And, you know, this really was kind of uncalled for the way I was treated. So I was, I was so thankful for that. I mean, I was very grateful for, for that. It's funny because in a city like Pittsburgh, like I'm not, I, I wasn't born here, but um, <laughs> I'm not really a sports fan. And I wouldn't know who Kenny Chesney was if I mm. sent me a picture today, but <laughs> I absolutely as just a resident, have always have seen all mm -hmm. the follow-up mm -hmm. about the Kenny Chesney concert and what happens. So again, when I saw that picture, it was just so like, if you're in Pittsburgh, that, that, it was that, such a Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh like tweet. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no, even someone like me gets it. You know? Yeah. 
but so even I, so, I mean, afterwards, people were saying, you know, when I was when the tweet had first went out, people were replying to me like, yeah, I mean, even if you think about the destruction after a Super Bowl or after a college football win or loss or maybe St. Patrick's Day Parade. I mean, we kind of <laughs> see these instances where people wreck the city, but if it's in celebration, you know, it's it's looked at one way. But if it's, you know, for a right. cause that has to do with, you know, supporting black lives, it's looked at another way. So people were, you know, I guess more so supporting that, agreeing with that double standard when it was framed that way. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I had I mean, I had a, a ton of support and people thought that the, you know, the punishment that I faced was, was too harsh and things like that. I mean, I was I was just really shocked by how many people spoke out for me. So I'm, I'm super grateful for that. I'm curious to the that ex- that feeling that you described about being in the newsroom and being one of the few black reporters in the newsroom and, and feeling excluded or not heard. How often do you feel that when you're just in the city of Pittsburgh, when you're outside mm-hmm. of the newsroom, is that a, is that a common occurrence? And Oh, what, absolutely. Really? Okay. <laughs> I mean, it it, what's yeah. interesting is like I said, I grew up here. So, um, you know, growing up here, you kind of almost don't realize it. It's just like a thing, you know, like, like I said, being the only black person in my class for several years, um, I was in the honors program. I was in the gifted program. So that kind of put me in another like, uh, you know, world where I was really the only one of two, maybe three black people in the entire program where I was taking these kind of AP classes and things like that. Um, and then, like I said, I moved away. And when I moved to Philly to go to Temple, I mean, it's so diverse out there. Philadelphia is four times as big as Pittsburgh. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, their their population of black and brown people at am sure is I mean, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but it's way more than what Pittsburgh has. And then when I moved back is when I realized I was like, oh, my God, like when me and my boyfriend moved back and we went to a restaurant, we were the only black people to walk in. And we kind of got that first like, oh, like I haven't I haven't felt this in a while. You know, like, you know, has Pittsburgh changed in the three, four years I've been gone or has this always been how it was? And I just was so used to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was just so, it was just so normal to me yeah. to be like that. But if we're, I mean, if we're talking about bars, restaurants, nightlife, there's always conversations about, you know, the, the bars on East Carson street, how they will discriminate, uh, use uh, discrimination against you for your dress code and things like that. I mean, um, so it's not anything foreign to Pittsburgh. It's almost, you know, kind of on brand that, um, you know, there's a low percentage of black people in any newsroom or corporation or office space. Um, and that, you know, we face the consequences of that, you know, because the, of the segregation and, and like you spoke to a little bit earlier, even the equality as far as the neighborhoods and things like that. So I, I don't think it's, you know, it was like what, what happened at the post because that was kind of reflective, you know, not to say everything was bad. Like I said, I got a lot of support from the city, but we've seen the comments and things about and how things were tense after Antoine Rose was killed. And that's a far different city than what we're seeing about all these people that are protesting now. It's very interesting to see how many people, people of non-color white people are protesting now and had kind of a different attitude towards the situation when Antoine Rose was killed two years ago. So, you know, that's always in the back of my mind. I mean, uh, if I, I say, if you really want to know who Pittsburgh is, go scroll through some Facebook comments. You'll see, you'll see just kind of the worst, the worst of it. I try to stay out of the comments, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, Pittsburgh has a lot of work to do. And um, if it, you know, I'm not sure what that looks like. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's kind of in every every aspect of the city for sure. Hopefully the real city's somewhere in between, right? Between the, the Facebook comments mm-hmm. and the. <laughs> yeah. And the and hopefully it's somewhere in the middle. I don't know. What do you hopefully. think, Barbara? 
Yeah, it's interesting when you talked about like what it's like in the city. Uh, this past weekend, I went to um, one of the riverfront parks and um, I was with my mom and we were walking toward like benches that sit and look out at the water. And um, it was in um, Aspenwall. So as I was walking toward the water to the benches, they looked like they were empty. And then it looked like some people were sitting on them. And my initial thought was, oh, my goodness, what if it's white people sitting at the benches? Are they going to be mad that black people are coming to sit at the benches? Like I had this whole dialogue in my head about sitting at a bench where there's mostly white people in the neighborhood. Right. So we got to the bench. They're like uh, chairs. More, they're more like chairs. And um, there was a young African-American girl. So then my next thought was, oh, my gosh, why is there an African-American girl in Aspenwall? <laughs> so the racial piece of Pittsburgh is like embedded in you because you know what to expect in every zip code. Like you definitely know what to expect. And so um, then later in the day, I walked along the path um, and there was a couple, a white couple who had a little dog, a little dog, and the dog started like barking like crazy. And the thing that I appreciated, and this gets back to what you talked about, Alexis, about empathy, was that they both spoke to me. You know, they spoke to me and they said they were sorry and that the dog is not dangerous and blah, blah, blah. And that in itself completely like, uh, lowered my racial expectation of everything being bad in that space. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that happens all the time for me. Yeah. You kind of almost always have your guard up. Yeah. You don't know what to, what to expect. Um, so I definitely understand. <laughs> guard is up and then someone says something and it goes down and then it goes up, up again. And mm -hmm. So you're just like this walking, like, Oh my gosh, is racism going to be part of my hour right now? 100%. Yeah. I, I'm so sorry that happens to you. I mean, and it, it's, you know, as a white person, it's, it's good to hear you talk about it, to hear those, um, those experiences so that, that I, you know, we can gain a better appreciation for what you're going through. Uh, I will say, and I don't want to say like everything's perfect in, in my neighborhood or in white neighborhoods, but I, I will say the other, uh, unusual outcome uh, recently has been that there's so many houses that have black Lives matter uh, black lives matter rally uh, signs in their front yards and uh you know si homemade signs that say you know white silence equals violence and and just those things that uh i think people are trying white people at least some white people are trying to signal like we're we're hearing you finally and we're we do want to try to message to you that this shouldn't be have to be a racial moment for you it, it should just be a moment uh, and so i hope Hopefully that that takes some root and that that moves forward and it has some real meaning behind it. Did we talk about that, Andy? Yeah, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but yeah, if you want to share your. Yeah. So, um, Alexis, you know, um, uh, uh, white uh, Blackridge, you know, the neighborhood of Blackridge. Mm -hmm. So I live on the border of I live in Penn Hills, but I'm like on the border of Wilkinsburg mm -hmm. Hills and Blackridge. So when I go for a walk, I usually walk toward Blackridge and I walk in and out of the streets of Blackridge because there's not a lot of traffic and, you know, I don't yeah. have to worry about, you know, traffic. So anyway, um, as I was walking through, I was telling Andy, like when I saw so many Black Lives Matter signs, it gave me a sense of relief because I knew that I was walking mm. through a predominantly white community and I didn't want to always feel like, oh, there's that black girl again. Where does mm. she live? Mm. But seeing all those signs on yards on different streets, again, pu pushed my guard down and gave me a level of comfort that, you know, on every turn, there's at least one or two streets that have Black Lives Matter. And so I felt like it was OK for me to be there and that, you know, 
more than likely nothing really racial would happen to me. Right. Well, let me tell you, it's always okay for you to be there. No oh, matter yeah. what. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it is okay way, for you to be there. Yeah. But you know, and like you yeah. overhear someone use the N word and then you just have that feeling like, not that you shouldn't be there, but like, like I don't want to deal with this. Wait, wait right. you, you just threw that. Does that happen to you? Like you overhear people use the N word? Is that a thing? Heck yeah. Really? Yeah. 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 yeah that's. It's interesting that you said, you know, you just feel like I don't want to deal with this because, you know, how many, how often that we have to pick our battles is insane. And that kind of circles back to the tweet. It was like, you know, am I going to fight this? You know what I mean? How, am I going to pick this battle? You know, and I've talked yeah. about it with my, my union president. You know, I was like, hell yeah. Like, what, let's, <laughs> let's <laughs> yeah. take this as far as it can because let's, because this is not right. But, you know, how many battles have I passed on? I mean, tons, thousands, millions. I mean, in my lifetime and newsrooms and certainly this is my first news job. So, I mean, there's been a million battles that you kind of just like, I don't have the energy for this today. And that kind of goes back to what Andrew was saying at the beginning about like what white people's role in it is and like how black people have kind of had to carry the burden of fixing these problems that we didn't create. And, you know, so it's, it gets exhausting, you know, it's like, do I have to correct this guy for saying the N word? And then I have to go back and forth like, should I, you know, but meanwhile, his white friend is standing right next to him or maybe even a black friend is standing right next to him and probably allowing him to say whatever, because he doesn't feel like fighting that battle. I mean, it's kind of just like this constant state of like, you know, do, do, do I feel like dealing with this today? So I felt that one in my soul. seriously. <laughs> well, and, and it's a great point you brought that up because I think that is that is one thing that white people can do, you know, in those conversations mm-hmm. whenever, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even if there's not a black person within, you know, hearing distance and yeah. especially in those situations where it's just white people having a conversation, it's important for us to to say that that's not acceptable uh, yeah. and, and that, you know, you, you can't talk like that. And, and because, you know, we talk about, you know, conversations change. And if it's a group of just white people, sometimes people feel more comfortable saying things and it needs to be in those situations where we say, no, that's still not acceptable. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's yeah almost more important behind closed doors. Yeah. Sure. I think that's important, Andy. Right. Um, even when there's no people of color around to hear that, that you have the um, you know, the allyship within you allows you to say something because then what you're doing is you're setting the tone for this immediate mm-hmm. circle of people. And, you know, maybe they'll still be your friend after you say that, but then they also know that, you know, maybe there's other people that feel like Andy and I really like Andy. So I'm mm-hmm. not going to say that anymore because I thought it was cool, but it's not right. And so it starts to negate some of that conversation in other circles where you're not there. What we're talking about really is like just kind of using your privilege for good. You know what I mean? Like white privilege has kind of been a hot button, but it's so real and it comes up in so many different situations. And like how, how, how far are you willing to take that privilege? How much of the power that you've been given as a white person in America, are you willing to give up and kind of divvy out to people who haven't had those same opportunities and things like that? Um, and, and, and how, and how often are you using, are you willing to use your, your privilege or good? Because I feel like there's, you know, probably a hundred times a day where it can be used, but you know, you may not just know how or when, um, because it's just so inherent to kind of have these opportunities and have the privilege to even say in work with no consequences, you know what I mean? (laughs) It's a privilege (laughs) and being, and being those kind of situations. So, um, I think, yeah, the more people that realize, you know, kind of the privilege and the power that you have in this society and not think it's like a fluke <laughs> or that, you know, black right. people and brown people are just making things up. You know what I mean? Um, I think the better and that that'll kind of guide you to, to the action part of it. Um, 
and, and, and using it for good. You know, you said something, uh, Alexis, about you know white people having to give up something to make room for for black people and people of color, and uh, I, I just want—I mean, like in some cases, it seems like it's not necessarily even having to give up. You know, by by making room for uh, a black colleague, or you know, creating a path for a black colleague to be successful, or a person of color to get ahead doesn't have to diminish me as a white person you know it, mm-hmm. in, in many ways it can enhance mm-hmm. what I'm doing it can make the, the world you know my, my world more interesting and brighter and, and more uh, you know with a greater perspective so um, that's something to think about too um, you know because yeah, I, from for white people like you know well we don't want to give up anything but what are you really giving up you're actually you know increasing yeah, something when you had you. a 400 year head start it's like <laughs> you can give up <laughs> you can give up a couple a couple yards i think yeah. <laughs> only, only 400 yeah. years yeah sometimes in my <laughs> workshops i say you know i've had to every day i wake up i have two male sons right so every day literally i spend my days worrying about whether they're going to be you know in the face of a police officer for whatever reason it doesn't even matter right and so i worry about that every day and so in my trainings i say you know i want you every day to think about what you can do as an ally to make a difference so i think that yeah i totally agree with you alexis using your privilege for good is something that you can do and it's not you don't even realize how like you said andy Mm -hmm. how few things you could do a day that really Mm -hmm. make a huge impact without even giving up anything. Mm-hmm. Well, a big part of it is having this conversation with both of you. So uh, I want to thank you both again for uh, you know having the conversation, Alexis, uh, for being here with us. Well, I think we could go on all day, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, Definitely. Yeah, but uh, as our producer, Tyler Polk, said from uh, the beginning before we came on the air, uh, much respect to you and, and you know thank all you. the work that you've done. And um, you know when you explained about taking on this challenge and, and what it would mean, um, you know... I, it just it's good to hear you talk about it and uh you know and to share your perspective so thanks for being here thank you yeah. guys for having me i really appreciate well, nice it you, alexis absolutely thank you. <laughs> i meant to say that um even though we have the same last name we're not related probably <laughs> this is like an inside thing yeah no we're not <laughs> um, but i would be honored to be related to you oh thanks <laughs> we might be honest <laughs> you live right around the corner from me so let's check uh, that. <laughs> yeah, sure. um, thank you so much you had some great um words of wisdom and we really appreciate it. And if there's any way that um, YWCA Greater Pittsburgh can connect with you or do anything with you beyond today, we'd love to because our mission is eliminating racism and empowering women. Nice. And, and yeah. same for the Center for, for Media Innovation more. too. Whatever we can do to support <laughs> you. So. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. When thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of Among Neighbors, a podcast on race, power, and privilege. The show is a joint project between the Point Park Center for Media Innovation and the YWCA of Greater Pittsburgh. And as always, the producer for this show is Tyler Polk. Thank you for listening to Among Neighbors. This podcast was produced and recorded at the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University in downtown Pittsburgh. Audio versions of Among Neighbors is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Video version is available on YouTube.